Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. The dramatic forces that are going to shape our future are autonomous and intelligent machines. So now what? Right. Now what? Now the question of what does it mean to be human and what do we value about our humanity and what does the future of work, life and society looks like are in perfect focus. And um, and so when you when you ask me about sort of the work that needs to be done and the work that I'm defining us or helping us to do is how do we create leaders that are conscious custodians of our world, that understand the existential risk of AI. Swiss-born, raised in Italy, to a German mother and an American father, this child of the world grew up speaking five languages and who is now reimagining humanity in the age of intelligent machines. It's this week's guest, Caroline Chubb Calderon. This interview is a two-parter. In part one, we explore Caroline's nomadic upbringing, the challenges of living with her schizophrenic mother, the inspirational role of her father, her focus on finding thin slices of joy, her love of curiosity, how serendipity led her to working as an innovation consultant before setting up her own consulting business, Hello Humanity. We discuss her perspectives on the forces that are shaping our future, the possibilities and risks in an AI-driven world, the need for a global moral compass, and so much more. I hope you enjoy part one of this optimistic but reflective and contemplative exploration of humanity in the age of AI technology. Caroline, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for making the time. It's great to see you here today at Neuhaus. Thank you. Before we get into discussing your life, which is really interesting, and I've got so many questions given, as I said before the interview, you're very hard to research. Mm. So before we get into discussing your life and what it is and who you are, we like to talk about your upbringing and understand more about your childhood. So maybe you could just start. So I'm a child of the world, if you will. I was born in Switzerland, raised in Italy, German mom, American dad, <clears throat> lived just about all the continents and um, speak five languages. What else can I share with you? I have wow. a sister. My sister lives in Italy. First of all, you're a child of the world. What did your father and mother do? that led you to living in so many interesting places? Uh, my father was a CFO for big conglomerates and various ones. My mother was a homemaker. And, um, you know, we traveled with him, but we also traveled for me. I, I'm, I love adventure. I love learning about different cultures. I love going around the world. So on my own accord, I moved to France and to uh, Sydney and Australia and traveled just about every continent because I think, in all honesty, the human culture, human condition is so intriguing and interesting to me. And I want to see it in all forms and all functions. What was it like? What were your parents like in terms of the guidance and the direction they gave you and how they influenced the journey that you've taken and fostered that sort of character mm. that you, the way you describe yourself? What was their impact? So, uh, you know, my father was an incredible person. Uh, he's passed now, but and both of my parents have passed. My father was the kind of person who would walk into a room and just light it up. He was the kind of person that met you and would make you feel like you were completely understood and welcomed and cared for. And he was just a bon vivant. He loved living in the moment. He loved just savoring every 
instance of life and making the most out of every situation. My mother was a very different scenario. My mother was a beautiful person from what I understand. That's always a good description. I must use that. My mother was a very different scenario. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, uh, so she was a bon vivant. She was a person who was very curious in the world, but that's not the person I met, uh, or at least that's not the person I remember, because when I was about 10, she developed mental illness, oh. and it was a very difficult upbringing, if you will, if you ask. Um, she was schizophrenic, and... Me being 10, sort of grew up with that uh, in my life. Now, you asked me earlier when we walked into this podcast, how has your early life shaped you? And I've been thinking and reflecting on that question because I knew you were going to ask mm -hmm. me those kinds of questions. And I can share with you that I, although I had a very difficult upbringing, very difficult with my mother being so, so mentally ill and living in Italy where mental illness is not understood and it's certainly not cared for. And there certainly aren't any... Uh, structures to handle it. I don't regret a minute of it. And as a matter of fact, I am insanely grateful because her illness stemmed from a disassociation with reality. It stemmed from an, a perspective of life that was definitely ill. But what it taught me is that we all have these perspectives that shape our experience of reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. But right. let's go back to that thing, the disassociation with reality. Can you give me a specific example of how sure. that manifested itself? Sure. And for and also, she developed mental illness at age My age ten. At your age ten. Yeah. What led to that? We don't know. We um I mean they've done some research in the world of mental illness mm. and schizophrenia specifically and um, some of it is genetic, a lot of it is um, you might have a predisposition for a mental illness and then there's a trigger in life that mm -hmm. could actually cause it to become fully blown and some of it might be environmental. So nobody really knows. Um, my best guess is she was raised in the Second World War and had a lot of trauma from that. and. I think right around the time I was 10, she lost her father. So I have a feeling that that grand sense of loss and um, Where was she brought uneasiness up? in Munich, in uh -huh. Germany. Uh -huh. Yeah. So um, anyway, to come back to the disassociation, disassociation with reality, schizophrenia is an, is an illness of delusions, of you know, hearing voices and hearing, you know, having beliefs that are quite different than what you and I might hold. Her big delusions were delusions of persecution. And so she felt that people were trying to kill her, that people were trying to brainwash her and us and everyone. It was quite tricky upbringing. But, but as a 10-year-old, to suddenly have a mother transform from being a stable individual to manifesting behaviors like mm -hmm. you're describing mm -hmm. must have had a destabilizing impact on yourself. It was very... So first of all, it's not like a flip of a switch. Mm. It happens progressively. And my belief is there's probably some chemical imbalance that grows over time and then becomes fully blown and difficult. How was it for me as a 10-year-old? Well, it started as a 10-year-old, and it went all the way until she passed, which is when I was 20. Mm. She passed out of breast cancer. So it was 10 years of figuring out how do I negotiate life without a mother? How do I negotiate life uh, with a mother who's very at loss? She's just broken. 
and disenfranchised from reality. And as a child who, you know, uh, there's an interesting dynamic, and uh, this is to no fault of your own, but as a second, as a second child, you're younger, mm-hmm. right? And my older sister is nearly five years older than me. So when I was 10, she was 15. And as a result, she was out and about being with her friends. I was the one left at home with my mother, and my, my father was traveling the world. So all of this to say that what it's taught me is this incredible, and not even in the moment. When I was 10 to 20, I have to say, it was difficult. I had moments of wanting to, I don't know, just have some normalcy, you know, just not have to negotiate this beast that she had become. Um, And at the same time, learning to navigate the trauma, learning to navigate the ups and the downs of that mental illness, and learning to ask for help. Help then, well, For your father? Well, yeah, but also friends who didn't understand the illness but could, uh, could just give me the safe place. So if you ask me what makes a successful individual, it's feelings of love, belonging, and safety. And I can tell you my father, 100% love. There's no question. He was my bedrock. Safety with my friends and belonging just in my community. Um, the, the choice of friends that I have made. So love, belonging, and safety have become sort of a, what's well, true for everyone, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know? And so many people's environments are bereft of that. They right. don't, yeah. Right. And that's obviously the struggle. I think our one of our first guests uh, was uh, Tyreek Glasgow, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. was... Uh, an unfortunate upbringing um, on the streets of South Philly and ended up as a drug dealer Mm. and then shot 11 times, went to prison, but is Mm. now reformed. Mm. But the bedrock, even though he lived in an abusive household where his parents weren't there, he had a grandmother that was his bedrock. So in these tumultuous times of his upbringing, he Mm -hmm. at least had someone that gave him that security and that safety and that love Mm -hmm albeit in a situation that was anything other than safe. That's right. So I think it's lo- it is interesting. You start to see patterns. Yeah. And that I, becomes one of the, the yeah. sort of the foundations of all strong individuals. And I think the highest calling of any human being is to be the bedrock for each other. Mm-hmm. That That is um, our ultimate purpose, our ultimate uh, responsibility. But I do want to make one more comment about the, the schizophrenia and how it's played out. There was an incredible turning point um, after my mom had passed, because my sister was sharing stories about my mother that were very warm and kind and generous, and I was like, you know, I don't know that person. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. I just really don't know. And I wish I had that relationship. I don't. As a matter of fact, you mentioned her name, and I, I just get tight because it's it was a hard, hard situation for me. And she said, yeah, but imagine living in her reality. Imagine living in a reality where people were trying to poison you left, right, and center, where your children, where you felt your children were being brainwashed, where you felt like you couldn't control the world. Imagine living from that reality. And just those words transformed my appreciation and understanding of who she was mm-hmm. and transformed my appreciation and understanding of who we all are because we all live from our own realities, whether um, you know, we all have our perceptions, we all look yeah. at the world through these lenses, and many of us are not dealing with mental illness, but many of us are, 
And whether or not it's mental illness or not, whether or not you want to declare it as that, just our perceptions of who we are as individuals or how we interpret the world shades and shapes our relationship with each other. It's interesting. I'd never really considered it the way you've just described it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a spectrum. I did this mental wellness um, event in May with the Jed Foundation, mm. and we talk about mental wellness to illness mm-hmm. and that spectrum of where you sit. Mm-hmm. When you talk about perceptions of reality, mm-hmm. It just it suddenly puts it in a completely different perspective for mm-hmm. me because I I look at it in a quite binary way mm-hmm. and it's my feeling but mm-hmm. now I'm starting to see it mm-hmm. on that spectrum the mm-hmm. way you're describing your mother's behaviour mm-hmm. and anyone else it just has mm-hmm. a perception of reality whether it be affected by political bias exactly. or whether it be precisely um, perceptions of race mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. gender. And it's all part of that spectrum. It's all part of the spectrum. And part of the work that we all have to do is to drop them, Mm -hmm. drop these lenses, drop these shades, and start seeing each other Mm -hmm. for who we really are. I mean, I'm just fascinated. Can you give me an example of where that behavior and that perception reality directly impacted you as a child when when you said you thought she was being poisoned? (laughs) I mean, was that because you couldn't go out for meals? You wouldn't go to restaurants or what happened in the house? a multitude of things. Uh, Well, I can share you some of the day-to-day and I can share with you some of the dramatic stories. And I I share it. I'm happy if if you'd rather us not go there. That's fine. That's fine. fine. I, um, I share it because this story is more common than any of us believe mm-hmm. or understand. And so for me, it's, um, I think by sharing it, I think people will appreciate and understand, A, hopefully, that there is a life after, right? And B, that there's lots and lots to learn from actually going through that experience. So typical for us is, we couldn't go to restaurants because my mom would all of a sudden start screaming in the middle of the restaurant talking to voices that nobody else heard. Typical for me would be being locked out of the house because I was a clone and I wasn't actually her daughter. No. Typical for me would be coming home and getting a screaming crazy mother who spoke uh, sentences that didn't make sense and me locking myself in my room to try to make myself a safe space. And even locking the back, uh, in Europe you have taparelle, I don't know what they're in English, there are these uh, window shades that come out. And there was a balcony that joined two ba- two bedrooms in our apartment. So in order for me to really be safe from her, I locked, balcony. no, no, I locked the, the shade on the balcony and I locked the bedroom door. But then she raged about the fact that I was you know, hiding, and she would turn off the electricity. So very often, I mean, this is dramatic, right? This is yeah. dramatic stuff, and people are like, how in the world are you as yeah, exactly. balanced yeah, and normal as you are? So I would, you know, find a way to spend my time in my room, doing my homework, da-da-da, finding moments of clarity and normalcy in that chaos. So, you know, you ask me, how am I who I am? I am, I am who I am because of who we all are. Mm-hmm. I am who I am because of who my dad was. I am who I am because of the way my sister embraces me. I am who I am because of the way my friends hold me. I am who I am because my mother taught me self-reliance, taught me resilience, taught me the true, true gift of understanding delusion. Mm-hmm. And now we all have it. Taught me how to um, be compassionate and have compassion for difficult mm-hmm. people. And taught me how to stay calm in the middle of a storm. There still has to be something in you because a lot of the, that's obviously the nurture, but there's there's something 
that any other individual, a child could have reacted in very different ways, regardless sure. of being supported, guided, and, and taught the way you're describing, right. could have reacted in a completely different way and gone rebellious. You didn't. Right. No, I didn't. Um, so there's something there's in your There's a joie de vivre. I love life. I mm. love meeting people. I love nature. I love, I, I love this amazing web mm. of life. I love the the uncertainty, you know, like how we met. Yeah, right? I know. And how neat it is that we get to sit here together. And I know. Have this I think it's fantastic. Right? Serendipity. Yeah, <laughs> Come to it. that. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've got a, a really good. So sense I'm sorry to start with a really no, difficult. No, but you know what? No, but it's good really thing important. that it starts there. It it's, is important. You know what I mean? Because it establishes the foundation right. of everything, as you said. Right. And can can you talk a bit of, just a bit about the role of the intensity of living with uncertainty of mm-hmm. never knowing because i'm assuming there was no predictability to her behavior precisely yeah. so living in a sort of an ambiguous unpredictable environment must have been difficult how was can you give a um, contrast that with the predictable side of your life what it was like for play mm-hmm. the school life the role your father had and how that balanced i think the unpredictability uh, of your mother's behavior right so I want to just say one more thing before I go there. Sure. I reveled in thin slices of joy. So hiking in the mountains and having butterflies land on my fingers, smelling a flower, watching the clouds, seeing a smile of a passerby. I lived in those moments. And that's truthfully what, um, that's where I lived. I didn't live in the uncertainty of the ups and downs of my mother. It was, I found refuge in those places. Mm-hmm. So how was the structure of my life and school and all that? That was refuge, right? You went to school and you felt that, you know, you were surrounded by people who were balanced, for the most part, people, mm-hmm. right? Um, I can't tell you how beautiful it is to live in Italy uh, because people are genuinely warm a warmth, a tactile warmth that you just don't, I haven't found as much in different parts of the world. So when you're embraced, you're fully embraced. And even just having that warmth from another human being can mean everything. It can mean everything. On the one hand, not having an infrastructure for dealing with mental illness and mental wellness. Right. Yet the, the character and the support of the people in a sense, is, uh, yeah. creates a, a counterbalance to right. that. And look, I don't want to paint a rosy picture. Italy was not progressive in understanding mental illness. There was a lot of judgment. There was a lot of you know cutting us out from society because my mother was ill. But I reveled in the pe- places where I was uh, embraced and accepted. That, that's just what you do. Mm-hmm. You find your people. So you had this innate optimism, joy for life. How did that how did that impact your your life at school? So, one of my worst one of my mother's worst moments, she followed me to school. We had to take a bus to school. I had to take it was a public bus. So, I'm in the public bus and all of a sudden I see my mother in the back of the bus. No. And I'm thinking, what is she doing here? Oh my god. <laughs> right? Like what what's what's, what's about see, to happen? You didn't see her getting on the bus No, with you. I had no idea. She followed me to school. And I go to class, I pretend nothing's happening. And I go to class, and I'm in class. And all of a sudden, my teachers call me out of class. And I'm like, oh, my God, what just happened? What, what am I in trouble for? 
and they, I remember being in the room very much like this, but the table was a lot bigger and it was gray. And I had all my teachers, eight of them, because in Italy you have rotating teachers. So I had eight teachers around me and they're like, is everything okay at home? And I said, mm, why? They're like, well, because your mom just came here and accused all of us of brainwashing you and made a big scene in the president's office and so on. And I was like, oh, that's because my mom is schizophrenic. And they're like, oh, you never told us that. Like, how are we supposed to know that? And I was like, well, I just not something that I particularly, you know, what age advertise. You this? When this, no, this is 13, 14, 14 probably. So mm, I'm telling you that story because it's not, you know, like you just, life, life outside of home was beautiful and normal. I mean, not challenging, of course, you know, friendships and breakups and all that stuff. But it was, it was a place to just play and experiment and be joyful. And people didn't know that uh, side of me. Did you feel any pressure from your mother's behavior? You use that great term, slices of joy. Mm. Was that because you seized those moments as an escape from the reality, the harsh reality of your mother's behavior? Or do you remember being like that before she, uh, her behavior and her schizophrenia manifested itself? I, I think I've always been like that. And I actually think I'm like that because of her. From the stories that I heard of her before she developed a mental illness, she was that kind of person. And my father's that way too. Mm -hmm. Just the bullion laughter in the moment. Was it a bit of a refuge, like shying away from you know the difficulty? Sure, I can't say it wasn't. But I think it's also a tool. And by the way, what you don't know about me is that I teach meditation. So I'm both a futurist and a humanist, but at, at, in my nighttime hours when I really engage in what I love and to do is I teach meditation. And when you teach meditation, what you're teaching people to do is to be more present. Mm -hmm. And when you are more present and you slow yourself down, you are, let's say you slow yourself down half. 50% to what you what you normally do, you are open 100% more to what life actually has to offer. And I think that is a tool. That's a tool we all need to slow down and notice. Notice the beauty that's around us because it fuels us, it helps us. And I think that's what I learned from her. Truthfully. Uh, that's interesting. It makes me think, I can't remember who, whether it was someone we were interviewing or an interview I listened to about kids that were being taught meditation and how one of them said, wow, everything goes so fast. Mm -hmm. The reality is you slow down into the present and you're living in this very particular moment, the present, but the present is now the past, is now entering the future. Yeah. And there's a sense of a reality of how quickly life passes mm -hmm. when you do slow down and how quickly mm -hmm. life is moving. So <laughs> for me, they're, they're, I find that fascinating. Um, there's also there, a lot of wisdom in the present. So if you touch the present moment very deeply and profoundly and you, you understand the real meaning of the present, you touch an infinite past and you touch an infinite future because your past is made out of present moments and your future is only defined by this moment. So the present moment, when you understand it, um, shapes your behavior. So you become exquisitely intentional mm -hmm. about how you show up in this moment. We don't really think as human beings about the moment in the moment mm -mm. at all. Mm. 
I think most of us live our lives either in the past or in the future, regardless of our mental, where we sit on the spectrum. <laughs> so there is that spectrum of where, where you sit on that wellness, that mm -hmm. wellness spectrum. Mm -hmm. Then there's another spectrum of where do you sit? Are you a future focused mm -hmm. person? Mm -hmm. Are you a past focused person? Yeah. Yeah. Are you more present focused? Mm -hmm. I'd love to see that somehow graphically represented. I think that would be mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah. And actually start, we, we interviewed Chantelle Martin. I don't know if you know her. Mm -mm. You'd really like her. So she has a um, point of view um, on the world, which is based on who are you. Mm. And she says that when we meet, when you meet people, people always say, ah, hi, what do you do? But what right? she yeah. has is spent her, her life and her art doing is an examination of self. Mm -hmm. Who are you? You are you. Are mm. you you? And she does live performance art mm. and spoken word. And I, we went to see her do a performance at um, Sotheby's and it was brilliant. Yeah. And seeing her doing her, her drawing as she talks is, right. is wonderful. And I think that examination of self and asking those questions of yourself as to really hard, existential, deep, inward looking questions of who are you? Yeah. Is something and how are you? Exactly, but it's, just, it's, very, yeah. it's very hard to right. do because most of us try to avoid confronting that reality of mm. self mm. and take refuge in what we're doing yeah. or what we do. Well, and we see our achievements as our standards for our worth. And I actually think that's the one thing we need to try to change in society is to measure human worth less by achievement and more by inner development inner knowing yeah mm. so <laughs> a long way off from that in many in many cases yeah we are and actually but then again and we'll get into this i actually mm. think this is the time no no i absolutely yeah, agree this is the time talk to me about school and how that impacted the direction your life has taken i loved school <laughs> i love learning mm. i love um the questions and trying to wrestle with the answer. How does it impact my life? So, first of all, practically, yeah. what subjects did you love? Just about all of them. Um, so my my major my undergrad major is in psychology. Uh, I went to Dartmouth College, and then my uh, MBA is concentrations in organizational behavior, marketing, and strategy. But even younger than that, I loved math, I loved physics, I loved biology, I loved, I just loved all of them. Perhaps the, the one that I loved the least in business school was accounting. <laughs> but, but, I'm with um, you on that one. Yeah. Trust me, I've been there. But you know, like, uh, I, I don't know that I can give you a very uh, thoughtful answer on this. Let me see if I can try. Uh, I think this goes back to your point about um, inquiry and serendipity, right? There is, as soon as you learn something, a piece of insight or information, there is this world that just bursts open of new ideas, new connections, new thoughts that you had never thought about before. And there is an energetic field that just unfolds within you when you have that burst of insight or burst of connection that I crave, I love. Mm. Um, so, you know, put me in front of any subject and I can find connection to another subject or put me in front of, um, I don't know, a mathematical equation and I'm joyful in figuring out what that is. And I just really love that moment. I loved the moments of, of insight, of joy, of, of, of learning that. So learning for me was a pathway to that feeling. Mm. Yeah. 
So that sounds, not to put words in your mouth, but it does sound like you're an, an innately curious child. Mm. I, well, I am. Yes, I think we all are. I think we forget to be curious. I have a, a deep interest in what curiosity means and how it shows up in people and how it, how it unfolds because my background is also in helping organizations unlock their innovation potential. Uh, and I can share with you what I've come to understand is that we are all innately curious and that perhaps what's blocking us the most are our inner restrictions to our, our inner uh, editing that keeps us from sharing our gift to the world. And also self-limiting beliefs that we all... Without a doubt. Yeah. So limiting beliefs, inner editing, that's number one. And number two is our busyness. We just get so busy that our f field of focus just narrows and we lose our capacity to entertain broader, bigger questions or ideas um, and to play, which is such a great yeah. fuel of curiosity. And... Um, and I actually think our connection to nature fuels curiosity as well. There's some studies that show that neuroscientifically it has an impact on our... On a, our that's interesting. And one of the questions we'll ask you towards the end is around mm. where do you go when you need space to think. Right. And a lot of people we speak to, it's nature, it's beaches, it's mountains, it's walking. It's universal, isn't it? Yeah. And we forget it. It's mm. like we, we live in a divorced world, but <clears throat> the na nature, we're one and the same. We need to be part of it, and it needs to be part of us. So yeah, um, when you talked about, I mean, obviously organizations and and the importance of curiosity and play, mm -hmm. made me think of the great Ken Robinson mm -hmm. TED talk. Yeah, sure. Around how yeah, creativity, yeah. creativity and is. And we don't teach it in schools. I know. So your your love and your lust for learning, mm -hmm. obviously, made your school life a lot more easy to navigate than mine. <laughs> that's mm, for sure. Mm. I wish I'd had that. I was always curious, but not about school. Right. Um, <laughs> but see, I was just going to say that. Mm. When you use the word education, I answered based on our societal construct of education, yes. which is, you know, kindergarten through graduate school. But I actually think my best education came outside of school. And perhaps the best education I'm getting is right now. It's right now learning about the inner workings of humanity mm -hmm. and what it means to be human in an age where intelligent autonomous machines are going to question or put that in question. The best learning is right now. The most profoundly exciting learning I've learned from meeting tribes in Tibet, you know, though that's learning. Mm -hmm. That's not always book learning. But it's it goes to the same f sensation in my body, which is this like burst of, I don't know what it is, but the burst of insight that comes from unlocking your thinking. I think I'm not going to go too much on the education then, because I think it's, we've got so many interesting things to talk about. Mm. But before we get into that life beyond when you went, obviously you said you studied psychology, what was it made you pick psychology? Of all, <laughs> of all the things of someone that was so fascinated by different subjects, yeah. you could have gone in many directions, yeah. you zeroed in on psychology. <laughs> what made you zero in, zero in on psychology? So there's a really funny story behind that, because I did have a really hard time deciding what I wanted to major in. What I did was, at the time, they used to publish these course books of all the courses offered in the schools. I actually give this advice to new students as well who don't know which direction they want to go in. So I went through the entire course book and I put check marks next to the classes that, of um, topics that I would be interested in learning mm -hmm. and then did a tally and decided and, and figured out which which major had the more 
most classes that I would be interested in learning in, and it turned out to be psychology. What a great so. approach. I wish I'd had that <laughs> rationality of thought. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you don't follow what you're passionate about, then what's the point? Yeah. Right? That's true. So I don't know where I went wrong. I don't, I don't know where I went wrong with my my teenage years. I just wanted to be a fighter pilot, and that's and nothing wrong with that. Change the change the language. Change your inner language. Yeah, there is when you go to an, an interview board with the navy and the, the admiralty, and I you read them an anti-war poem. <laughs> it doesn't get you very far. Right. Well, <laughs> so yeah, and I actually think the point of war is peace. So maybe yeah, well, you were exactly. quite right. I was, yeah, ahead of my time. I shouldn't say the point of war is peace. The point of all of us is to preserve peace. peace yeah. I don't believe in aggression. How would you define what you do? And how has it evolved over time? Um, so the way I describe what I do is I'm a futurist and I'm a humanist. Mm-hmm. And I started my career being a humanist, meaning I worked with organizations trying to unlock um, their leadership capacities to be leaders who led for humanity who led for um, helping people show up as their best selves at work. And I just always felt like I was a champion of a human, of the human in any context, but especially specialized in the work context. Did you do that straight out of university? Yeah, so um, I ended up working for a consulting firm that specialized in all kinds of people matters, and then ended up working serendipity. Mm-hmm. Uh, got connected to a woman who to, to, to today is my mentor who taught me everything I know about um, leadership and human potential. Her name is Susan Lucia Nunzio and uh, she's, uh, she's just a delightful, amazing human being. Anyway, so I moved to Chicago, ended up working with her. We did large-scale transformations and executive development uh, programs and then went to business school and at business school, I realized the future isn't strictly about optimizing for the human in terms of performance, right? Because what we were doing, what we were tasked to do is, mm-hmm. so how do we do um, strategy implementation? How do we move people along to help us imp- affect a strategy? And it felt a little hollow. It felt like technical work. And I was um, always intentional on in doing very purposeful work. And so during business school, I I had this moment of reflection where I realized the future of business, especially for first world country, wasn't just going to come from optimizing human performance. It was going to come from unlocking human potential for innovation. And from that point on, I was very directed at we need to really figure out what innovation is all about and how we actually create conditions and and cultures that allow for innovation and and develop leaders that do that. And um, moved to London, and in London started working for uh, an organization called What If Innovation, which was also very serendipitous. I can tell you that story. Okay, let's do that. You wanna do that story? So my husband and I are moving to London, and we see this is gonna be interesting because we have techniques for everything. So we're trying to decide which neighborhood we're gonna live in, and we get intentionally lost. I don't know if you've ever done it. Get intentionally lost in some type of place that you are. So we get intentionally lost in Marlebone, and we go into back streets and so on, and there's this nice little square. It's a nice area to get intentionally lost. It's a very nice area. You wouldn't want to go to Thamesmead, where Chantel came from. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could do that, too. Yeah, it might lead to a slightly different experience. (laughs) Depends on time of the day, but yes. Yeah, that's true. So I pass this, um, you know, this 
square and it's this beautiful square and all of a sudden you see this you know this window pane and it says what if innovation and it's got this spider-man cow in the front of it and i'm thinking this looks awesome so i looked them up and um and it was great i mean they were a brand consulting firm at the time and i was like ah oh, that's not really what i want to do i want to work with innovation leaders and break the mold and do disruptive innovation and really think about how we unlock the human potential and uh, went away and at the time I was working for Booz Allen and uh, I actually turned down their offer they really wanted me to work for them I turned down their offer and they would not let me turn down their offer they're like you have to work for us so just give us another try come to London work in our London office so I did work in their London office um, and kept working with them and all of a sudden I got a call from but what if it's in the back of your mind well no I got a call from a recruiter and I don't know if you know, but recruiters can't really tell you the yeah. name of the company when they first meet you. So she's being very vague and she's telling me it's this company and I think you'd be great for it and all this stuff. And I was like, sure, I'll go, I'll go meet them. And it turned out to be what if. And oh, it wow. turned out that they were just starting the innovation culture and capability practice. And guess what? <laughs> I started working with them and then very quickly became one of the sort of pillar leaders of that practice and worked with them until I had my first child which is when I moved to New York and then I started Switched On, which we were doing the same, similar things. So. Very then, interesting. Yeah, and then from Switched On, you you know, at, during Switched On, I was working with big, big, I am still working with big, big companies. So IBM, PepsiCo, Emirates Airlines, Cody, Indeed, and predominantly the work that we're doing is around two, answering two questions. The first question is, what does the future hold? That's the futurist part. And the second question is, how do we lead for it? which is the humanist part. And you take those two questions and you evolve them to this moment in time, talking about the present moment, and the future is going to be radically redefined by AI and automation, mm. and the way we lead for it needs to look dramatically different than any way that we've thought about it in the past. Say those two questions again. What does the future hold, and how do we lead for it? When you describe that, that moment when you, f you flip from what you did before around mm -hmm. optimizing optimi performance performance mm -hmm. you said we had to go further yeah can you just describe that again because for me that was a was there a moment there when you had that burst of that aha wow this is mm -hmm. this is where there's a real future this is a significant change in perspective because mm -hmm. you've been going down this track which was maybe mm -hmm. suboptimal and then mm -hmm. you suddenly opens up an opportunity to mm -hmm. see the world in a completely different way was yeah i had a few of, i've had a few of those which is why i'm doing the work that i'm doing here but so as a futurist, what you have to do is look at the global trends mm. um, that are directly affecting your industry, but also very, uh, very much on the event horizon. And what I love about the work that I do with What If or Switched On or whatever is that you do look at the most dramatically curious and unusual places to understand where the next big thing comes from. And I naturally have always done that. And while I was in business school, I naturally had this moment of evaluation of where, what are the global shifts that are happening? And at the time, what was happening was a lot of the organizations were offshoring. Do you remember the yeah. words offshoring? They were offshoring to you know India and China, et cetera, because they had lower employment costs, right? So you have offshoring, which we- Can I just yeah. stop you there? Yeah. Just to put a timestamp on this. So yeah. you, this was what year when you started yeah, working at What If? Oh, I started working at What If in 2000 and 
five. I mean, still early stage for a lot of people. That was very mm-hmm. early stage of the internet, obviously. Yeah. I, clearly, a lot of the things that are happening today, the infrastructure was being, being put in place to prepare for a world that we're living in now. Mm-hmm. We're, we're experiencing a negative impact. A lot of the, there was still this utopian vision of a, a connected world. Mm-hmm where there'd be freedom to, for people to sort of move between countries, um, outsourcing work, working um, remotely, and all these wonderful, this wonderful mm-hmm. vision. Mm-hmm. At the time, presumably, you were looking at these big mega trends, like mm-hmm. you're saying, mm-hmm. uh, uh, looking at the offshoring as one example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how organizations would change and how yep. human life and communities would sort of right. evolve as well. And what the role of an individual within an organization would look like. There was an automatic uh, requirement to um, shift the role of white-collar workers. We, we're moving from a you know a co- commercial economy to an experiential economy to then a um, uh, brain economy, if you want to talk about talk about that that way, which is more about valuing the intellectual input of a human being. And and yet we were just valuing the intellectual impact of a human being, and we weren't valuing the creativity and the capacity for it to imagine. And so it was a really a, a crucial moment in time, in my opinion, for us to redefine and re-explore the role that a first world country can have, because we weren't going to be able to compete on salaries, right? We were, the cost of labor was going to be much cheaper in different countries. We weren't going to be able to compete on labor. We weren't going to be able to compete on production mm-hmm. because that, again, was tied to labor. It was cheaper in other countries. The only thing we could compete in, compete on was the educational capacities that we had as a, as a country and also the affect that we have in the U.S. to create and be entrepreneurial. Yeah. So those two things needed to be our next big chapter, and they did turn out to be. Um, you know, we did see the rise and then the fall of the internet boost, but that was just the beginnings of figuring out how could we become an entrepreneurial country. So I was very much at the early stages of that. What was the reaction? Well, first of all, what level of uh, decision makers are you dealing with when you're doing this consulting? Is it heads of innovation? Is it C-level, board level? C-suites um, and then CIOs. Yeah, mm-hmm. chief innovation officers. CHROs, so you were, so you were you were preaching to the converted people that were willing and and open to the potential for change and the necessity for change. So early movers are predominantly the people I work with, um, because late movers are by nature cautious. Um, so by nature they have they have a difficult time with what really is required to make innovation happen. But people who are willing to define the world and not be defined by it are the ones that are typically the people I work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's lots of practices and uh, innovation consultancies, but you you're come at it from a slightly different perspective. As you say, you're a humanist. Right. Before we get into talking about the specific challenges that we're facing as a society today, can you just talk about different perspective in the way that you mm-hmm. focus on innovation mm-hmm. is through the lens of humanity. Mm-hmm. Can you just explain the yeah. differences and the, and your maybe a little bit about your methodology? Sure. And I should say we're look I'm working on chapter 2.0 of that now, mm-hmm. right? Okay. With Hello Humanity. So, the core of innovation, the true core of innovation is radical inquiry. And we and radical inquiry comes from individuals and it comes from the top down right so when i talk about humanist work i work with the executives first 
because they need to understand what does it take to do innovation. And they need to understand that the number one thing that stands in the way of people innovating is that they don't feel safe. Um, I did the first global study on this, and that was the number one output. So if you are a leader who can't create contexts where people can feel safe to innovate and safe, and this has now become you know, secondhand parlance, everybody's talking about it, safe to innovate, safe to fail, safe to you know, uh, stick their necks out, safe to call, you know, to pull the red plug to say this isn't gonna work. If they don't feel safe, you're not, you're not gonna innovate. And how do you create safety? You have to create a context of safety. You have to create a context where people can feel like they can show up as themselves. And you, can have, you have to have moments of iconic demonstrations that people can and will be celebrated for taking the most radical chances as long as they're based on some type of insight. So uh, when I talk about humanist work, it's work with the leader from the inside out about how they do radical inquiry and how they create safety and what safety even means for them. And then it's context work. It's working with the organizational culture and behaviors and structures and, and even down to how people are rewarded. What are the systems that are defining the way that people can and cannot innovate? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's been the work that I've done for many, many, 20 plus years. As you say, the way you describe, you work with leaders who are obviously future focused and they're open and they must be driven by an imperative, even being in, in organi- large organizations who are su- currently successful, but mm-hmm. always cognizant of the f- that the future brings with it uncertainty mm-hmm. and therefore the risk mm-hmm. of destabilization and for disruptive innovation mm-hmm. innovators coming in when you sit down with these these c-suite decision makers mm-hmm. is there a brief and context focused in a f- specific way around technological disruption and the mm-hmm. threat that they face and therefore creating an environment for innovation or is it more of a, a general context that they say we need to create an environment that is more innovative or is it both do you get the specific and the general it's both my favorite clients are the ones that are not in the defensive position Uh that are not waiting to be disrupted or believe that they're about to be disrupted that's a very defensive position my favorite clients to work with are the ones that are on the offensive position that are just defining the future that are deciding to make a mark in this universe and they're going to lead it and they're not going to wait for someone else to tell them that they should be going in a different direction. So yes, I mean, there's always a business case, right? There's always the you know incumbent uh, being challenged by the small startup. There's always a new technological evolution that's going to radically change your business. There's always going to be you know price shifts and geopolitical pressures that are going to define your future. And a lot of the work comes from making sure that you are responsive to that. But the most dramatically exciting and visionary leaders, they don't do it out of that need. They do it because they want to define a different future. Mm. I heard, I think it was, um, I think it was an interview with Uval Noor Harari with mm-hmm. Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. And he talked, basically said, there's only three really important things that we face today mm. from an existential threat. Yep. It's environment, it's nuclear war, yep. and it's the impact not potential, the impact Mm -hmm. of artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
Of those, I mean, presumably there's not a lot you can do from an organisational standpoint about the risk of nuclear war, and there's probably not a lot you can do from the perspective Mm. of environment, although supply chains and stuff you must be able to identify and and, and paint a picture of where Mm. there might be issues from an organisational standpoint with that. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. that the technological lens through of artificial intelligence and machine learning Mm -hmm. is the main area of focus for you. Yeah, well, precisely because of what you mentioned. So I had another one of those moments where I said, what is the f- what are the future, uh, the dramatic forces that are going to be shaping the future? The first one was in 2003, 2005. The second one was in 2013, 2015. The dramatic forces that are going to shape our future are autonomous and intelligent machines. Yeah. So now what? Right, mm-hmm. now what? Now the question of what does it mean to be human and what do we value about our humanity and what does the future of work, life, and society looks like? are in perfect focus and um, and so when you when you ask me about you know, sort of the work that needs to be done and the work that I'm defining us or helping us to do is how do we create leaders that are conscious custodians of our world that understand the existential risk of AI and and by the way nuclear war and uh, environmental uh, existential risks are very closely tied to our technological course, yeah. uh, risks. So they're um, they're exponential in nature. They're not they're not individual. They they mm-hmm. kind of work together. So now the question is, how do we create? How do we develop leaders who can be, who can maneuver through this world with the utmost integrity? And that's that's the biggest challenge that we have right now because our collective forces, both societal and profit-driven forces, are guiding us to be. Um, they are setting ourselves up ourselves up for making choices that are possibly going to have long-term ramifications. The choices to be first in market in AI, the first to be the largest in AI, the first to develop the latest AI that can, you know, scan your retina and figure out what your your internal emotional um, state is. Um, the first to, you know, it, it's guiding us to be the first, but it's not guiding us to ask the, well, does this need is this where we want to lead humanity is this how we want to create a future for ourselves um, should this actually exist do we need to reevaluate human flourishing in this context what does human flourishing look like um, is our work contributing to that or detracting from that none of that work is systematized or thought about which is where hello humanity comes in i, I first met you at an event I think it was at Google mm-hmm. which was a Hello Humanity event right. where obviously the what you're talking about part of that is just the ethics underpinning yes. artificial intelligence and, and I think the there is maybe you can draw a parallel with um, the arms race at least when there was the arms race there was detente and there was a, a, a unified perspective on creating at least a standard that there was a code through which our countries competed in that race. Mm-hmm. But with artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. there's a race mm-hmm. that no one else has created a set of standards mm-hmm. or a code of ethics. I'm working on it. That, which is great <laughs> that that's actually happening because that's the most terrifying thing that yeah. so much of it is happening at, uh, at a pace, mm-hmm. an accelerated pace, that certainly most of, I think, the, the both business and political leaders mm-hmm. aren't able to control and shape. Yeah. 
So I and I jokingly said I'm working on it. There's a lot of us working on it. Um, so I'm actively with uh, the IEEE working on defining ethically aligned design and what the ethics for AI should be in autonomous intelligent machines. The World Economic Forum is working on it. There's things coming out of the UK. Um, beautiful, beautiful guidelines. So the the and what I actually think we need to take a moment of pause in yeah. this interview because the conversations around this work are so dystopian and dramatic mm -hmm. that it's fueling a, um, a sense of fear and a sense of rushed debate. And I actually think this could be a moment of profound human reimagination of where we truly do the inner exploration of what's important to us. What does it mean to be human? How, what kind of future do we want to create for ourselves? What could society look like when you remove the, the labor of our jobs, mm -hmm. when you can solve for global inequality and you can solve for um, environmental challenges, right? What could that be? And start from there. Yeah. And do the inner evolution of humanity that's required for us to really show up as our highest selves. And that's, for me, I actually think this moment could be the moment, the defining moment of the course of human history. But that, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. The problem is that the driving forces are profit and competition mm -hmm. against either nation state right. or organizations right. or sectors. And the per underlying focus and purpose of mm -hmm. investment and desire to win the AI race mm -hmm. isn't to achieve that ultimate goal for humanity. That higher order vision mm -hmm. is, for me, from everything I've read and everything I've followed with it, and mm -hmm. I'm nowhere near as deep into it as mm -hmm. you are, mm -hmm. I, for me, seems to be uh, lacking in there. And I totally with you. I mean, if we're to even to get into conversation, I mean, just look at it. The debate that, that happened um, last week with the Democrats, look at what's the, the conversations that um, occurred around Brexit in the last elections. Mm -hmm. Do we hear these, probably the most important area of discussion that should be uh, being had between political aspiring political leaders should be this right the because it AI. isn't yeah. it has to be because right. it affects everyone and if people aren't being educated by our political leaders mm -hmm. into the and i don't want to give paint a dystopian view but mm -hmm. the existential risk to us and but mm -hmm. also the utopian possibilities of universal basic income mm -hmm more equality, mm -hmm. if that's not being driven as part of these debates, mm -hmm. then we're some way off getting to yeah. that point that you're, you're, you're talking about. Yeah. So presumably that must be a challenge for you as to how do you inject and force that narrative into the, the discussions that should be had around these political, these big decisions that we're making as a democracy. Yeah. I believe that we need more voices, and I'm trying to be one of the voices, but we need more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, governance has always trailed um, industry, and um, and I don't know how to fix that because there's such a gap, there's such a wide gap of information uh, knowledge that needs to be developed in our government agencies for them to really understand the impact of AI. There's lots that's already happening. There was just a huge event in governance uh, where people were um, testifying on the future of AI and trying to decide what the future of life and work and governance should be. Um, so the beginnings are happening. 
I also believe that at least the way that I've chosen to go this path is to work directly with the industries mm -hmm. um, because I think there's going to have to be an, the utmost integrity and self-regulation on this. And I think the U.S. can lead the way in it. Um, but I also think that there's a there's sort of like a global moral compass that needs to be developed and decided. And we are starting to have those global conversations. And I think because the pressure is so... Uh, the pressure, the danger is so acute, it's going to precipitate those conversations to happen. It is already. So um, the answer to your question is twofold. It's number one, there isn't one person or one agency that can do it all. There needs to be dramatically more work done in governance and in defining how we're going to lead this AI. Yeah. And the second is, how can we individually and as organizations decide how we're going to lead this future in a moral and ethical way? Okay. Yeah. That's all for now, folks. Come back next week for part two, where we dive deep into the changes that need to happen to enable us to reclaim our humanity and intentionality, to counter the forces and dehumanizing effects of technology and AI as we nurture our imagination, insight and inspiration. See you next time. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.